Good morning, friends. My name is Ron. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It's really good to be here with you again. Um, I'm going to tell you a story that I'm going to regret telling you. <laughs> it's been quite a week. Last night, I was driving south on the uh, 805 freeway, and I was heading for home. And I was thinking about so many things. I was thinking about this week my wife fell and broke her arm in two places. And that would be Kendra Oaksmuller's mom. She's probably going to have surgery this week. It's, that was not expected. And uh, some of you, most of you know that uh, Bob Brower, it's good to have Linda and Bob here. Uh, this week, uh, let us know that he's going to be retiring this summer. Oh my. And, uh, and I was thinking about being here with all of you, praying for you, thinking about this service. I'm driving south, 805, 805. I'm talking to my brother, and I'm thinking about all of this. And I come up to um, my off-ramp, and I just keep going. <laughs> Until I see this off-ramp site that says, Last USA Exit. <laughs> 15 miles. <laughs> and so fortunately, I did see that. I was able to... Otherwise, I'd still probably be wandering around in Mexico someplace. <laughs> Anybody else ever do that? No, it's all, oh, thank you. I don't feel completely alone. Well, so, you know, if you're hoping to come hear a preacher this morning who's really distracted or focused is a better word, absent-minded, you've come to the right place and I'm your guy. <laughs> But thinking about this time and how important actually these days are for this congregation. This was my home church for a long time. Some of you don't know that. And uh, thinking especially about uh, Pastor D and Kay. Did you see that they're here with us today? I thought this would be just a really good time to take just a few minutes and pray with Pastor DMK. So I'm going to come right over here where there's more space and invite them to come join me. And maybe the, some of the church board and the staff and some of the rest of you could just gather around. Let's take a minute and pray together, shall we?
Oh Lord, help us now. We uh, don't hardly know how to pray anymore. It's been too long. But what we know is that we know Pastor D and K and we know their heart and their character, their love for this church, their love for you. And what we know to do now is to come back around them and lift them to you. Pray for your sustaining grace, for mercy, Lord, for mercy. For wisdom and discernment, we pray. And so we pray blessing, yes. Oh, but more than that, mercy, Lord. And I pray in the days ahead that as we continue to wait and to pray, to listen and to discern, that there would be a way forward in all of this. And especially, not just for the church, but especially for D and K. And we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, come up here where I can see all of you just a little bit better. They, um, when Vicar was telling me that, inviting me to, to preach today, he said, now, I want you to preach at least a half an hour because the children need to finish the children's program. I have never been invited to preach at least any amount of time. <laughs> the last time I preached, they said, could you limit it to 10 to 15 minutes? You may be wishing the same thing by the time this is over. We'll see. <laughs> but I've been thinking, what do we do now? What do we do now? Have you uh, been in any time like that where you just didn't know what to do? Maybe, you know, there was a job change, or you lost your job. Or there was uh, uh, some climatic event, some, something that turned life upside down, that time in between, and you just didn't know what to do now. What do we do now? So I was thinking about scripture and I'm wondering what in scripture there might be for us now. And thinking about, you know, most of scripture, you know, these great, you know, Hebrews 11, these men and women of faith that knew what to do and they 
by faith they did it. And, you know, here's Moses and here's Abraham and you know, they knew what to do. But what if you don't know what to do? So I decided um, maybe there's some places in Scripture where they didn't really know what to do. And maybe we could just uh, sort of look at those to see if there's just a clue of what to do when you don't know what to do. So I'd like to just uh, invite you to join me in sort of thinking about some different passages in Scripture just briefly. I got a half an hour, you know. <laughs> that uh, first one that comes to mind is after the resurrection, here Jesus has appeared to the disciples and uh, appeared different places, um, but he's no longer, the disciples are no longer with him on a day-to-day basis. And, and, um, and here we have this remarkable passage with Peter. And so here they are in this in-between time Jesus has been raised from the dead. Clinicians tell me that uh, there's distress and there's eustress, you as in euphoric, that uh, sometimes it's kind of stressful when there's something that's really exciting has happened, but it's turned everything upside down and you're not sure what's ahead. So I think this is more like eustress than distress. But Peter didn't know what to do. So what did he do? Come on, you know. He went fishing. Gee, he went fishing. Come on, Peter. I mean, can't you do something better than that? Like organize a march or write an op-ed piece or something. (laughs) But Peter went fishing. And I've been thinking about that. Why Why would he do that? Because he didn't know what to do. And when he didn't know what to do, he did what he knew to do. So he just did the next best thing. And he went fishing. (laughs) What's really remarkable is a whole bunch of other disciples went with him. They didn't know what to do either. And uh, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this, but he went fishing and uh, Jesus found him. As he's out there, you know, it's that story again where he didn't catch anything and throw your nets on the other side of the boat and all of that. Jesus found him. And there was another part of the story. There was more to come. It, uh, the story wasn't over yet. And he kind of knew that, the resurrection. There's got to be more to come here. So just take that little piece. Peter went fishing. Let's put that over here. In 1992, I was pastoring... Um, First Church of the Nazarene, actually the First Church of the Nazarene in Los Angeles. And uh, I'd been there for a long time. Um, And maybe you heard that we had some riots in LA, the LA riots. And where I was pastoring, we had engaged the community in lots of different ways. you know, just food distribution and health clinic and gang alternative programs and a, a hospitality center for people who are homeless and all kinds of different things engaged in the neighborhood and 
neighborhood networking and partnering. And where we were was the first place where the riots broke out north of the 10 freeway. And the whole place exploded. Within 48 hours, um, there were, we estimated, over 100 businesses within a mile of our church that were looted and burned. There was a murder in the parking lot, the Vaughn's parking lot next to us. Everything that we had worked for just like went up in flames. And that Sunday morning, we gathered for worship in one of the churches that we had planted, the Exposition Park Church. Their, their facility was burned, it was gone. They joined us for worship. That Sunday night, some of you may know Michael Mata. He was on staff with us, and he preached. And I still remember the title of his sermon was um, Plant a Garden. And he was working from the Jeremiah passage. I hesitate to say anything from the Old Testament with, you've got two of the best Old Testament scholars in the church and beyond, and Stephanie and Brad in this congregation. And in that passage, you may know that there was the Babylonian exile, that uh, Israel had been conquered by Babylon, and a lot of the leaders, the priests, a lot of them had been sent into exile into Babylon. And Jeremiah uh, hears from God and sends a letter to Babylon, and he basically says, uh, build houses, plant a garden, uh, seek the shalom of the city. Settle in where you are. Part of what Michael was wanting to say to us is, uh, you know, the life as we have known it has been not just disrupted, but uh, a lot of it's been destroyed. What do we do now? Plant a garden. And in some ways, plant a garden has the symbol of uh, starting over again. But it's also, when you plant a garden, there's, a, there's that sense of hope that actually, now not necessarily for me, but for those of you who are really good at gardening, that you'll actually have some fruit or vegetables or something that'll grow on it. It's, it's a symbol of hope, a symbol of something still to come, that there's still another chapter. This isn't the end of the story. There's still God's redemptive future ahead. And in fact, for the people who were in exile, that was true. It just took a long, long time. So it was, oh, the archeologists and historians estimate that it was about, oh, 50 years, give or take. A long, long time, a long time, 50 years, gee. So I've been thinking about that and here is this passage of, what do you do now? I don't know. Go fishing. Plant a garden. I also think of that, uh, that um, book title by Reuben Welch, When You Run Out of Fantastic, Persevere. When you don't know what else to do, just keep on going. Maybe Jesus will meet you there. But living into the redemptive 
coming history of God that's still our future. So I thought of a third passage. And going back to the disciples after the resurrection and Jesus, you know, there's that 50 days before Pentecost and there Jesus appears to a lot of the disciples and 500 people at once, it says, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15. And so there's this, uh, Jesus is appearing to the different disciples. And then um, he gathers them together, it says in Acts 1, and he gives them instruction to, um, to wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then up he goes, he's gone. He's gone. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, he disappears. He's gone. What do we do now? So what did they do? They um, went into the upper room, about 120 of them, and they did what they were supposed to. They waited and prayed and waited and prayed and waited. Does this sound familiar? waited and prayed and waited and prayed and waited and prayed. And then there was God's next chapter, the promise of redemption, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Yeah. I have one, one more direction to go with all of this. Then uh, see if I've used up my 30 minutes yet or not. So. <laughs> In Romans 8, this is not so much a story, it's a passage of Scripture. In Romans 8, Paul writes, um, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation, the anxious longing of the creation, this, this picture of all of creation with its head stretched out, anticipating God's future. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God and daughters of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now that's, that's really what I want to point out. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Now, I'm not much of an expert on this. But they tell me that childbirth is about a, well, it's at least a 12 on a 10-point scale, right? And it's kind of curious to me why I hear that it's so painful, and sometimes women decide to do it more than once. <laughs> Doesn't make sense to me. Except, at the end of the pain, there's a baby. New creation. And in fact, that's what Paul seems to be saying here. In this metaphor, he's saying, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. All of creation, with all of the trouble around and all of the suffering and all of the pain, 
It's an anticipation of the revealing of the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. That there's new creation coming. There's the return of Christ. And as you know, when we think about the already not yet kingdom, there are signs of the kingdom now. So even now, it's not just that we wait for the final day, but that God continues to reveal God's future to us and breaks in on us now, God's redemptive future that continues to be still out ahead in the final day, but also in the next chapter. The story's not done yet. There's still what God has in store. I, uh, I also hesitate to tell this story. It's pretty personal. Um, Twelve years ago, our family, Tim, and that was before Mia, Mia joined our family, and Leanne and Robin, and my daughters, and Janet, my wife at the time. Now, I'm talking about Janet, and for those of you who are a little nervous about me talking about my previous wife. I've talked with Melanie, and she's good with this, so I just want you to know. But Janet had uh, terminal cancer, and uh, so we ended up moving to San Diego, and this was our home church. And you reached out, and you loved and supported us and prayed with us. Dee was our pastor. And for two years, and Janet died. She died well. Even with all of your love and support and your prayers, my world was turned upside down. The only image I can think of is that the ground underneath me gave way. And I was falling, 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 falling. And uh, in terms of praying, I I have a theory that the deeper the pain, the shorter the prayers. Have you ever noticed that? That, you know, if you want to gather for a prayer meeting and you have a prayer list, you can come up with a whole lot of things you can pray about. But if you're the one where there is the pain that is so deep that it, it's pretty short prayers. It starts to sound like this, oh, oh, God, help me. And then it gets shorter. It's, oh, God. And then it's even shorter. It's just help. And then at the, the deepest part of all, it sounds more like just a, a, a scream from your soul. Just ah, ah. And there aren't any words, no words at all. That was me. A lot of people wanted to help and they quote scripture. And of course, the one that they wanted to quote the most was Romans 8, 28. And I know it's been really helpful for a lot of people, you know, God causes all things to work together good for those who love God, called according to his purpose. And that's, I'm thankful for that. It wasn't much help for our family. It was that somehow that, you know, God had some reason for all of this and that 
the choirs of heaven need another alto or God need another daisy in his garden in heaven or something. Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> but my kids, my kids needed a mom and I missed the love of my life. And I didn't know how to pray. It was just, ah. 828 wasn't all that helpful but 826 was. Listen to this. In the same way, this is Paul, in the same way the Spirit helps our weakness. Now, I, I love this next bit. Listen to this. For we do not know how to pray as we should. Do you know that Paul says right here in Scripture that he didn't know how to pray? He didn't know how to pray. The same way the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, and here's this word again, with groanings too deep for words. So the same word groanings that Paul uses earlier when he's talking about the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, waiting eagerly for the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. Groans, groans is now the image that he brings forward here. So here Paul is saying, we don't know how to pray as we should. That we're all prayed out, or prayed up, or just no more words. And here I am, falling, 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 and it's though the, the Spirit of God came down and grabbed me and held me close, became the ground under my feet and took me to the Father that even when there was no way even to pray anymore, that the Spirit of God was there. And so I think of the end of Romans 8, Romans 8, 31 through 39, you know this passage. And sometimes the, the one verse we really like to quote out of this is, we are more than conquerors, right? But in the context, it tells us about the sustaining love of God, even in difficult times. Listen. But what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, we are being put to death all day long, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the church said, Amen. thanks be to God. So, 
What do we do now? Ah, go fishing. Maybe. Maybe God will meet you there. Plant a garden. That sounds like a good idea. In hope of God's redemptive future. Pray and wait. Pray and wait. But if there are no words left and you're all prayed out, here is this word that the Spirit is with us. Even when we don't know. I think Reuben once said, when nothing's happening, something's happening. And the presence and power and the love of God continues to be at work in and through sustaining us, telling us there's a next chapter, the story's not over, and inviting us to be leaning into God's next chapter. Just a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of being at the uh, Pate's house, and it was uh, Reuben Welch's 99th birthday. They had a great time telling stories. It's wonderful. And at the end, uh, somebody said, um, Reuben, we ought to sing a song. What should we sing? And Reuben said, you know, 99 years, and there's all kinds of things he could say. He said, well, it must be great as thy faith. And I've been thinking, you know, that's actually the hymn that I want to sing every Thanksgiving Sunday anyway. But it's also just a hymn that basically reminds us that as God has been faithful in the past, he will lead us into the future. George, we ought to sing that a cappella. Can you just start us out on that? true, you know. It's true. We're going to move into a time around the table. 
And as I think about receiving the elements of the Eucharist communion, of course we think about Jesus' death for us, and it's a reminder again that in all of life, God is with us, and God loves us enough for Jesus to die for us, we remember. There are actually several ways that theologians think about and talk about the Eucharist. That's just one of several. Another one is that it's the Eucharistic feast. It's the people of God gathered together, and it's sort of a a warm-up or a practice for the final day when Jesus returns and all God's people will be gathered together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's anticipating what is to come, the Eucharistic feast. And I'm thinking that as we come to the table, not only to remember God's love and salvation and forgiveness, but also the Eucharistic feast, that as we take the elements, we live into God's future. We anticipate what God wants to do next, not just in the final day, but in this church and in our lives, just what's ahead. God help us.